Quiet, numbskulls, I'm broadcasting. Before the first aircraft appeared, the president asked the admiral if he could smoke out here. This was normally never done. No one would even think to smoke on the flight deck. Today, the rules were different. The admiral said, Well, sir, that's normally not done. But we aren't fueling any aircraft, and nothing's going to take place out here while you're on deck. So, yes, I guess you can smoke out here. With that answer, the president reached into his jacket pocket and produced a metal tin that had very short little cigars called Between the Acts. He started fumbling through his pockets, obviously looking for a light. The admiral began checking his pockets and then gave me a panicked look. I reached into my pocket and handed the admiral my prized Zippo lighter, the one with the Marine Corps emblem. The admiral immediately gave it to the president, who flicked it open and lighted his little cigar. When he finished the lighting process, he snapped the lid shut, rolled the lighter around in his right hand, paused for a second to notice the emblem, and promptly put the lighter into his right coat pocket. The admiral looked at me as if to say, We'll work it out later, and then said aloud, Get an ashtray. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. So there I was. Episode 51 with Spice. What a fun show this was. Spice is a retired lieutenant colonel, United States Marine Corps. Started off as a buck private Hollywood Marine. Went to the West Coast, which he shouldn't have done. That was uh, one of the first yeah, things. because he was, was east of the Mississippi. He was. He was, was an Indiana uh, boy and yeah. should have gone to Paris Island. But he was in a hurry to get in the Marine Corps. And so they said, all right. And they had a place for him in San Diego. Off they sent him. And it shaped the rest of his career, which was. And what a career. Storied. Holy cow. Yeah. Amazing. Five, five Author of five books, soon to be yeah. a sixth, correct? Exactly. Yep. And it's, it. Uh, I mean, I've only read the first one and I can't, uh, I couldn't put it down. And so I am going to read the next four before we have him back. They are amazing. I've I've read one in three. When the third one's about his exchange tour with the Royal Navy, flying H thirty four over there. Um, but he was a, a seagoing marine on an admiral. He was a, a admiral staff orderly, orderly to an admiral orderly admiral's orderly. Yeah, which meant he at uh, the age of nineteen and twenty years old had a top secret clearance. Said it was like being a fly on the wall. One of the show titles that we contemplated was, So the SOB Stole Your Lighter. <laughs> he met a- President Kennedy, who, who took his lighter with his Marine Corps Eagle Globe and anchor on it that he bought for himself the day he graduated from boot camp. It got around the <laughs> ship. It got around the ship that the president took his lighter. So the SOB Stole Your Lighter. Yeah. But that's not, that's not the title of this show. We actually decided to go with a little more serious title on here. I asked him, how did you work up the fortitude to go into a zone where there's small arms fire and 50 cows and mortars coming in that are going to tear you up? And I said, it may be a nebulous answer. He gave the perfect answer fig, the title of this show. What if it was me? Bingo. What if it was me that was waiting on that helicopter? Right. I went, okay, perfect answer. I mean, I just, I was stunned at how perfect that answer was. (laughs) It made the hair on my arm stand up. Because yeah. I, I was like, holy cow, that's it, right? That's, just, that's exactly it. And that, so that's how uh, all these men were flying these helicopters in the medevacs, in the hot zones in Vietnam, and in and, and every other war when they when these guys have done that. Why? What if it was me? What if I was waiting on that guy? What an absolute just priceless gem and gentleman and 
magnificent office officer and author. I I felt like uh you know just like many of our guests, I felt like I was in the presence of uh, royalty and greatness. Absolutely, I I couldn't say it any better. So what do you say? We get out of the way and listen to him. So sit back. Whether you're a rotorhead, title of his second book, (laughs) or a jet jackie, don't sit on the ejection handle. Don't let go of the collective. Don't do it. On the tanker, through the weather. Oh, and to the uh, tanker crew who uh, did that. Thanks a lot. We really appreciated that. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh huh. No, not. There I was crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fun. So there I was, 25,000 feet, heading 360 over the Pamlico Sound on my first ever AV8A hop. I'd taken off from Rinko Air Station, Cherry Point, about five minutes before, and my chase pilot was a squadron CO, Lieutenant Colonel Rocky Nelson. I was one of 10 members of the first ever 231 familiarization class in the AV8A. My brief was once I got on this position to retard the power and dirty up the aircraft, put it in the landing configuration and drop the nozzles to the hover stop and maintain my altitude with power. And I did this uh, just as I was briefed. And I had no idea what was going to happen, but the point of this was to illustrate to me in great uh, real-time fashion what intake momentum drag or yaw roll coupling would do to you. Um, I sat there as the airspeed uh, bled off. Uh, Of course, my little uh, wind indicator was pointing straight at the nose, and I didn't think too much about it until at about 60 knots, it made a sharp turn pointed directly to the left and the airplane departed to the right and I was upside down and totally out of control in about 1.7 seconds. <laughs> I retarded the power, I put the nozzles aft, I raised the flaps and uh, good to as it usually was on a Harrier when you completely lost it, um, it would gyrate around for a little while, and then it'd hit almost straight down like a yard dart. Yeah, one dart. <laughs> I, I managed to get it recovered fairly quickly. Um, added the power, came back up. I looked over to my right shoulder, and, uh, and Colonel Nelson was sitting right there. And the first thing, well, the only thing he said to me at that point was, and that's y'all roll coupling. and so there i was that's how all great aviation tales start and boy we came out of the gate at a full sprint (laughs) this is fig and uh my co-host is uh where are you today repeat i'm home in new hampshire there fig and yeah thank you very much what we just heard described folks was essentially the death equation and that's a good reason not to do that at 50 feet is it not sir yes yeah it's a very good good reason (laughs) That was FAM-1? FAM-1? FAM-1. At that time, the Harrier program had no simulators, no two-seaters. Oh, my And God. the emergency pocket checklist had eight pages. So, so Repeat's favorite question comes into play. What could possibly go wrong? 
<laughs> Folks, we have the Honorable <laughs> Lieutenant Colonel W.R. Spicer, United States Marine Corps, retired, went from the rank of E1 to O5 in an illustrious career, the author of five books at this point, wow. more coming out, Sea Stories of a U.S. Marine. The first one is From Stripes to Bars, and the last one is Command. Uh, I've read the first one, the third one, and I'm halfway, a little more than halfway through the second one. Fig, are these fun books or what? I I I couldn't put the first one down, and um, I gut laughed. It was, you know, I was there. It's excellent, well written, and uh, I feel like I'm in the honor of a legend right now because I'm talking to the man himself. Indeed, uh, and and I'll say this, you know, in in some of the pre-show chat. I spent time asking him about his family because they are prominent in his books. Yes. I feel like I, I, I know this man and I've grown up with him. But uh, <laughs> uh, So this is our first day of actually getting to chat with each other. Going back to uh, several shows back, Chaos told us about uh, a young major who was brought into a squadron that had lost four airplanes and two pilots in a relatively short order. And the commanding general had it up to his eyeballs with nonsense. And he sent this man in to square things away. And he did. So, Colonel Spicer, if you'd start there, and then I'd like to go back to ask all our basic questions, like how'd you get interested in flying and that sort of thing, which which we know from reading your book. But yeah, we know, but we we want you to tell it. Would Would you tell a little <laughs> bit about your first day in that in the squadron and what what were you thinking and feeling? What what kind of challenge had you just been handed? Are you, as as a new squadron commander? Yes. Well. the... <laughs> I put this in book five. It'll read pretty much like the other four books. But the squadron had lost four airplanes, killed two pilots in about the last four or five months. Without warning, I just got pulled off the bench. I was actually the area program officer at the NARF when this occurred. And the NARF is the Naval Air Rework Facility where they do heavy maintenance on the airplanes. Right. And now they probably call it something like the NADIP, you know. It does the same job, but in a typical fashion, the Navy, um, the bureaucracies like to change names and do the same thing. But anyway, I went to went to the squadron. We had scheduled an AOM. I had um, uh, a, a meeting with uh, uh, staff NCOs. We had a squad. We're going to have a squadron formation. But the first agenda item was um, the AOM. That's the all officers meeting. So I'm sitting in my office looking over the message board. I just wanted to make sure that I'd sent out the assumption of command message and the little paperwork that had to be done. And the captain that was then the operations officer uh, tapped on my door and he said, we're ready, sir. I said, okay. So I got up, I followed him down the passageway. We walked into the ready room and there was no one there. He called attention on deck, but there was nobody in the ready room. And uh, so I looked over toward the ODO desk. There was nobody behind that either. Uh, and squadron duty officers should have been there if we weren't conducting flight ops. <laughs> I turned to him and I said, uh, does this squadron have an emergency recall roster? He said, yes, sir, we do. I said, activate it. And any officer that's a member of this unit that's not here at, within the next 45 minutes will see me at non, you know, non uh, article 15 punishment at uh, 1630, the close of business. And I just walked out and walked back up to my office and sat behind the desk. Um, The 
they managed to all make it except one. And that was the guy that was supposed to be my XO. And, um, anyway, I got them all in the ready room and I, I sort of gave them your great Santini speech, you know, uh, there's a new sheriff in town and this is not the way the game's going to be played. This is the way the game's going to be played. It was pretty obvious from the get go that this squadron had absolutely no, uh, discipline and or sense of change of the command and the staff NCOs had been just completely cut out of the chain of command. I mean, uh, troops were walking up to officers or troops were stopping by the CO's office and things like that. So then wow. I had to, something I had to stomp on right away. <laughs> anyway, anyway, we continued the day. And then finally at, at about 1030, I guess we'd finished with formations, et cetera, et cetera. And I was back in the office and my Sergeant major tapped on the hatch and I said, sir, we need to talk. And I, I said, um, come on in. What can I do for you? And he said, well, sir, it's old business. And this was May. And I said, what kind of old business? He said, well, we were on deployment to Fallon in uh, February. And um, two of our guys uh, cut up the seats of a Navy bus and beat up the bus driver. I said, oh, geez. And he said, well, yes, sir. And I said, well, what has been done? He said, nothing. I said, you did not approach the squadron CEO with this? He said, well, I did several times, but he didn't seem to want to handle it. And I said, are these men still in the squadron? He said, yes, they are. So I said, what is it you'd like for me to do? And he said, well, I think it needs to be taken care of. And I said, well, I don't feel like starting out with a court martial on day one. So why don't we just have office hours? <laughs> and I got up and I walked over and I opened the door between my office and S1. So that people in S1 could hear me. And that's the administrative shop. They handle all the records. I said, what time do you want office hours? And he said, well, sir, whenever it's convenient for you. And I looked at him. In fact, I stood up from behind my desk and I looked right at him across the desk. I said, you didn't hear me. Now, listen carefully. At what time does the sergeant major desire to have office hours? And he stood there for the longest time. He obviously wasn't used to being spoken to like that. And he said, well, sir, it would probably be good if we could have them at 1330. I said, very well, sergeant major. Office hours will commence at 1330. I wanted that word to get out. I wanted to hear the troops to hear uh, what I was saying to the sergeant major, because I felt the first thing I had to do was reinstill a chain of command. So uh, sure enough, at 1330, mm -hmm. he brought in the, um, the SRBs. I read the charges, the specification, all that sort of stuff. And I said, march them in here. So I listened to their sad tale and I found them guilty. I uh, reduced them one rank and I felt they should have been lucky. I didn't lock their ass up and uh, marched them out. I wait, you know, about 20 minutes later, Sergeant Major came back and knocked on the hatch again. I said, yes, Sergeant Major, what can I do for you? He said, sir, I need to talk to you about the punishments. I once again made sure the door was open between my office and the S1. I said, what about the punishments? And he said, well, you didn't suspend the busts. And I said, what did you ask for as punishment, Sergeant Major? You said you thought reduction was in order. Yes, sir. 
That's what I, I said. I thought reduction was in order. I said, what did you get? He said, I got reduction. I said, well, then be damn careful what you ask for in the future. <laughs> and right? that was, it was just a horrible first day. Right. Uh, I, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. No. No. To go into a position like that. And um, right. so, um, and the, and the CG had told me, he said, I don't know you. You're not on my team. Yada, yada. I'm, you know, you, you've been sent to me by reputation only. And, uh, you know, I, I told him, I said, this can't be a one-way street. I got to have command support. So we had a pretty frank discussion in his office. Plus, I was a major, not a lieutenant colonel. And um, he said, I'm leaving, but you got 30 days. You have an incident, you drop one, you miss this, you miss that, said, that's it. You're going to wipe your ass with your fitness report and sign it in both places. Wow. <laughs> a double signer is a bad, a career ending piece of paper for a Marine officer. Yeah. So, so that was, that was uh, the, the basis on which the whole thing started. Well, it's a good thing there was no pressure involved. Well, that's right. Uh, Jeez. You know, I, Used to laugh about that. They don't be nervous. Everything depends on you. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's just <laughs> yeah, that, right. It, my, my palms are sweating. I just want to tell you both. Good luck. We're all counting on you. <laughs> you didn't start off as a major. Would you go back? In our case, uh, I'll say, can you go back to book one and tell us how you wound up with the honor of the Eagle? You mean now I got in the core? Yeah. Well, I uh, yes, sir, yes, sir. And I went. I got the football scholarship to the University of Louisville, and I went down there and with every intention of possibly going to medical school. And the deal was, they had a 3.0 system. If you maintained a 175 grade average point average or better, they guaranteed you if you signed to come play ball for them that they would get you a seat in one of the professional schools, either law or medical. And so that was the basis on which I went down there. I played a couple of years and then I came up to the selection for or my uh, schedule, which would have been my junior year, I guess. And uh, the coach wouldn't approve my, uh, <laughs> wouldn't, approve, wouldn't approve my academic schedule. And so we had some words about this and he said, I needed to be on the field. I, I needed an organic chemistry lab and it was only offered once and I didn't wasn't going to be on the field until about 4 30 and so I said well if you feel that way you know I quit so he immediately either wrote or called my draft board and uh, back in the days of the draft you know you were 2s (laughs) deferred if you were in college and if not you were 1a and so I had a couple different jobs I was working at the Stadler Meatpacking Company I was working for Patrick Pipe fitting company and saving every cent I could to go back to school. Um, I was too stupid to know at that time I could have gone to school on my father's VA, but uh, Uh, anyway, I got this draft notice and I said, I'll be down if I'm going to be drafted in the army. So I went down and uh, enlisted in the Marines. How about that? And uh, he describes it in much more detail in the book, which was good. Uh, oh, it yeah. was good. He had to hunt the staff sergeant. Yes. That's yeah. In a local bar. <laughs> uh, that, that was how I, uh, every night coming home from yeah. a cellar meatpacking company, I, I seemed to be passing the local courthouse at about around midnight. And that was when his ad came on the radio. 
and it was uh, joined the course through Elsmore. So that's who I decided to go look up. And I remember uh, going into the courthouse. I was very nervous. And I walked past the Army and the Air Force and the Navy recruiter. I kept asking where the Marine recruiter was. And they kept pointing down the hall. Anyway, I got down there and he was not in his office. I heard a typing sound. No, sir, I beg to differ. He was in his office. It was down the street, and there happened to be beer and, beer and whiskey behind. He was right across the street in the Southside Tavern. And at that hour of the day, he happened to be the only customer sitting there. He had, had on modified uh, dress blues, had his cap pushed back on the back of his head, had a palm all cigarette smoldering in the ashtray and about a half-consumed draft beer. It was lunch. And I told him I wanted to join the Corps. He tried to run me off. I told him I wasn't going to go. If he's going to do that, I'd go join the Army paratroopers. He said, now, wait a minute. Don't get stupid. <laughs> don't be crazy. He said, I'll tell you what, buy me a beer and we'll talk about don't it. So it that's how my whole career started. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. Oh, wait, wait. So if I remember right, you wanted uh, you wanted the fastest way in, right? The fastest. Oh, yeah. So he told me he was going to put me in a 120-day delay program. And I said, no, yes. no, no. I, I said, I got to go now, you know. And he that was first first question after that was, well, you got some broad in trouble? Are you hot? <laughs> and I said, no. And he, told, he gave me this piece of paper and said, take us over to the police station and get somebody to sign it. Well, <laughs> I had an uncle whose brother was the chief of police. <laughs> no wants, no warrants. So I walked over to the police station. They said, what do you want? I told them. And they signed a paper and I carried it back, gave it to him. Um, so he, he he was good to his word. I mean, I, I was out of there in less than five days and on my, on my way to San Diego. And I think what happened was I was the only member of my recruit series, platoon 168, 69, and 70. I was the only man from east of the Mississippi in that series. So I think right, I was you, you should have been uh, to Paris Island, right? Because everybody yeah. usually east of the Mississippi goes to Paris Island. That's right. I think I was a quota stuffer. Right. Yeah, that one little court. Hollywood uh, Marine. <laughs> changed the whole course of my life. The fact that I went to the West Coast instead of the East Coast. Right. Right. I mean, because you wound up going to sea school and being on a, on a carrier division staff. And but that must have been fascinating to be a PFC and a Lance Corporal hanging around with captains and two stars in the Navy. Well, it was like being a fly on the wall, that's for sure. I had to get a top-secret clearance because I you you had to handle the Admiral's message board. So I read his mail, and uh, right. it was fascinating. Um, he, Commander Carrier Division One, was in charge of five different attack aircraft carriers, Hancock, Coral Sea, um, uh, Ariscany, I think the Bonhomme's Yard, I forget the other one. But in any case, he would jump from ship to ship to ship, and it was his job to make sure these things were ready to go. And then we just happened to be uh, in Westpac at the time that the orders came down to bomb, uh, start the bombing of North Vietnam. And I remember uh, when you went on duty with the Admiral, you were on from the time he awoke in the morning until he laid his head on the pillow at night. And you never left them. You were always within sort of eyeball reach or, or nodding or something. And, you know, right. the best thing to do was be able to anticipate his moves. You had to be Radar O'Reilly, so to speak, right? Yes, you did. <laughs> you had to be Radar O'Reilly. And, but I remember and he would sign his night orders before hitting the rack. 
And the night orders gave the task force the steaming direction, the speed, everything for, for the next so many hours until we were back up or he was back up. It was a, a really tense thing because we were going to launch. We were anticipating a word to launch strike. And he and the chief of staff had talked about this and they, they said, uh, we're going to have to figure out a place uh, that we need to be. But to make a long story a little bit short, I watched him put his pen on the map on the chart and he made an X and he said, we'll call this Yankee station and my <laughs> call sign will be Jehovah. And uh, <laughs> he signed the night orders and went to bed. And I don't know how many years Yankee station was Yankee station, but it, you know, you'd even hear it. I'd even hear it mentioned on the BBC when I was over. <laughs> right. Wow. How about that? Yeah. That's amazing. And to tie that in real quickly, just to today's headlines, we're recording this a few days after they arrested the young Massachusetts guardsman who had leaked all this material. And someone asked me yesterday, well, how did this guy at 21, 22 years old have this top secret clearance? And I go, I, you know, I don't know his story at all, but, but I happen to know of a guy who was on an admiral staff and he needed a top secret clearance because of the things he was going to hear. They had to be able to trust him. Yes. So, that, yeah, that's a big deal. Yep. It, was, it was a big deal. And I, I said I had questions myself about this latest incident because I don't know where he was, that uh, fellow that leaked the information, but he would have had to be somewhere where they had those files available. And yeah. I just can't imagine that that kind of information would have been in an Air National Guard unit, you know, somewhere. Yeah. Right. I know very little about the story beyond that, but when I was told he was 21 or 22 and, you know, why did he have a clearance? Well, I, that, I said, oh, um, that's why that was the first thing they said when I was in C school, my class graduated. Most of them went to, um, various ships detachments. Uh, and I was called down and the captain that was in charge said, cause I asked about my order. I said, everybody else got orders. <laughs> what happened to me? He said, you're being held for a flag. I didn't even know what that was. And uh, then the next thing I know, they told me to go over to NCIS or CID, I think it was, uh, and fill out this paperwork for a uh, top secret clearance. And I had lived, um, bounced around a lot as a kid. And I think on the form, there was about space for four or five addresses because you were supposed to list every address that you'd ever lived. And uh, so I asked the guy, I said, I'm going to need, more need another sheet of paper because <laughs> I had at least a dozen of them. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, the, the investigation, I, I don't know when it started, but all of a sudden I started getting letters from home saying, what have you done now? The right. FBI here asking questions. <laughs> right. <laughs> but That's but it was all part of the process. So any other funny stories from boot camp before we move on into bars and OCS and then uh, <laughs> and, and bar, by bars, I mean uh, officers bars. <laughs> uh, not from, not necessarily from boot camp. There were a couple of funny stories about, with the sea duty. Uh, I accidentally okay. got to meet JFK and he, he Oh, kept, the lighter. He kept the lighter that belonged to me. That's yes. Right. And, uh, Oh, please tell that story. Awesome. The first admiral I worked for was, uh, interesting guy, but anyway, he was charged with 
organizing what they called the presidential demo or Priestess demo. And Kennedy wanted to come out and spend the night aboard a carrier. It would have been the first time that a president had spent the night on a man of war. So, and you can imagine the total ass-leaping contest that that the president now, you know, started. Every nook and cranny was spit polished on an aircraft carrier. You had secret (laughs) service guys in there, you know, incognito and all that sort of stuff. And I had to keep track of all this stuff because the admiral said, you're going to be my orderly on the day of the demo. And, and we practiced for a month. The Lord only knows how much money we spent practicing for that right. demonstration. Well, all uh, the aircraft were doing flybys and demonstrating, dropping weapons and strafing. real missiles, right. you know, everything else. It was just <laughs> extensive. And finally, the day of the demo came. In fact, one of the funniest sides was he had a back problem, of course. I think that's pretty well documented. So they were going to put a rocking chair inside the captain's cabin because he was going to spend the night in the captain's cabin. And they had a duplicate built of the one that was in the White House. And they got out there and it wouldn't fit through the hatch, through the opening (laughs) into the captain's cabin. So they got a hold of the carpenter and flew him out. And he disassembled the chair enough that they could get it through the hatch and get it in there and reassemble the whole thing. I I mean, just to that level of detail. And so the day so they either broke the broke it or left the rocking chair on that on that carrier to the day. No, no. To my knowledge, it's still on the USS Kitty Hawk CVA. <laughs> yep. I don't think they ever took it out of the captain's cabin. Oh, um, that's that's great. And I don't know if the Kitty Hawk's a fishing reef now or not, but if it is, I bet you that chair is still in that cabin. <laughs> yeah. Is she? Uh, is she the one in Philadelphia Harbor? I, I don't that, know. Uh, I don't know. All right. I think you remember? I'm going to have to do some homework on that. That's Stand by, that, I'll tell uh, you. Yeah, because we had a, we had another gent on OB, and he was said he could see the carrier from his office, but I don't mm. remember if that was the Kennedy or the Kitty Hawk. I think yeah, it was the Kitty I Hawk. have no idea. I know the Ariskanes of Fishing Reef. That was the first carrier I was all, took a cruise on. Yes, she is. I want to dive her off of Pensacola. Yeah. Well, I lived, if you do dive it, uh, right out just inside the port gun tub, is a very mm-hmm. small compartment. And that's where I live for eight months. <laughs> nice. If I do it, I'll take some pictures and send it. That'd be you. great. I'd love that. I'd yeah. love that. Yeah. But the, the, the day of the demo, the weather just happened to be perfect off the coast of San Diego. And um, we had never gone through the whole evolution without having some sort of a mess up. And that day, <laughs> nothing went wrong. It was just perfect. The Admiral asked the president if he could have a cocktail party for the the president's guests, his staff, and so on and so forth. And the president said, yeah, go ahead. Just kind of, just about like that, you know, very casually. And it was during the cocktail party that, or the dinner after the cocktail party, uh, they had installed uh, three different phones in the admiral's import cabin. My job during the dinner and everything was to guard those phones. Anyway, the one went off that meant it was a staff call. It was for Mr. Salinger, Pierre Salinger. I think he was the press secretary and came in and took it and made a little motion like he needed something to write on. I gave him a pad and a a pen and he made a note, folded it up, said, take this to the president, will you? And turned around, went back into the dining room and I took it down. The Secret Service guy outside the door of the captain's import cabin, he was wearing a Marine Corps tie clasp and he saw me coming and I said, I have a message for the president. He just kind of smiled at me and said, why don't you take it to him? 
I walked down the JFK, was laying on the couch, had his leg up, had his jacket off, and uh, had an arm kind of up like this over his head. And, I, you know, I didn't, you don't get any training in boot camp is how do you address the president, you know, right. or whatever. So, <laughs> That's a little out of your chain of command. Yeah, I mean, he's so, at the top, but <laughs> a little bit out of my chain of command. So, so I said, excuse me, Mr. President, I have a message for you from Mr. Salinger. And he looked up and he took the paper and read it. And uh, I just stood there and I said, is there any reply? I said, uh, tell him I'll take care of it. How about that? Earlier that day, when we were on the flight deck during the demonstration, <laughs> He smoked those little between the acts cigars. And uh, he said to Admiral Masterson, uh, can I smoke out here? <laughs> and uh, the Admiral looked around, you know, and he said, oh, sure. <laughs> and he gave me the nod and I immediately ran to flight deck control to find one of those ashtrays that cl- clips up on the wall, on the bulkhead. Uh-huh. And I got that thing. I ran back and he and the president broke out his uh, cigars and then he's fumbling around for a light. And Master didn't, didn't have anything on him. So I reached <laughs> my pocket and I had my my Zippo with the Marine Corps emblem on it that I bought on graduation day from boot camp. I handed it to the Admiral. Admiral gave it to the president. President took the thing, lit his cigar, he kind of looked it over like, hmm, and put it in his pocket. And that was <laughs> it. I never saw it again. So, and then you got you got a sideways look from uh, the Admiral's aide, yeah. right? He said yeah, he, he gave you the look right. like, <laughs> they just kind of went like that, you know, and for days after that, and I'd be walking around the ship, you know, and I'd see various, you know, run into various sailors and and they, they get to know who you are because they see you with the Admiral, you know, and they would walk up to me and they'd say, so the son of a bitch stole your lighter, huh? <laughs> That's a show title. Oh, hey, that, <laughs> yeah. that is, yeah. Uh, hey, as a side note, the Kitty Hawk le- uh, was towed to Brownsville, Texas on May 31st, 2022 to be scrapped. Oh, I'll be damned. Yep. She's going to be razor blades. That's sad. Yeah. That's sad to see the great boats. Go I, like I that. love that story about the lighter, though. And so um, I, I can't remember. It was when you left or when the Admiral left that he gave you the lighter? Yeah, that gave me his lighter? Yeah, yeah, with I, the two uh, stars uh, on it. When I left the flag, the Admiral Lynn was uh, Edward Cobb Outlaw. Okay. Who, who was a really interesting man. And he gave me his uh, zip. Uh, he had Zippo lighters made up that had two stars on them and, uh, and a little bit of a flag. And he gave me that as a going away present. So, so you, you got a lot, you got a lighter back. It I did. It, well, it was <laughs> a couple years later, but uh, yeah, yeah. But not not the one you bought for yourself on graduation day from boot camp. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, that's yeah. a, I love that part of the book. That whole thing. Hey, uh, uh, side note: How old were you when you were on sea duty and working for the admiral? About twenty. Yeah, twenty. Okay. I couldn't drink in the states, so I was really relieved to get to the Philippines. <laughs> that's you know I th- I did the math. I knew you had a couple of years of college, so I thought he's still he's still probably only nineteen or twenty at this point. Yeah. That's a lot of responsibility for you know a kid. I mean you're you're really still a kid, uh, although uh, you had to grow up real fast, really uh, really fast. Yeah, I I remember uh, Admiral Masterton was the first one I worked for, and. Uh, the very first day I had duty with him, 
uh, he told me to get a hold of this commander that he wanted to see him. I said, yes, sir. And I went out and dialed the guy's number, and he, he was a special weapons officer or something. I said, sir, the admiral uh, requests your presence in the import cabin. He said, well, I'm busy right now. And, and so, you know, here I'm, a, I'm a PFC. What do I say to a commander? You know, right. And, uh, <laughs> your funeral. <laughs> I, just, I thought, well, shit, I called him. I'll just hang up, you know, and I did. And pretty soon the, the buzzer went off again. I went into the import cabin. He said, where's commander so-and-so? I said, sir, I called him and he said he was busy. And, and the admiral just kind of blinked at me and he said, uh, well, let's just get something straight right now. Spicer. He said, you work for me. And he said, if I ask you to do something or contact somebody, he said, it's like me getting a hold of them. So don't ever take that kind of an answer again from somebody. Nice. If I say I want to see them, I want to see them. Now, do you have any questions about who you work for? I said, no, sir, I don't. <laughs> you know, and, and that was it. But, so did this guy, you know, come up with his stones in a wheelbarrow to come see the Admiral? Because, man. You know, you never wore his stars. And and you were in the worst position of all because. Oh, of course. You were the cat or the dog they could always kick. Right. <laughs> but, uh, so, so you kind of had to balance all that sort of stuff out. I know how this goes. So I, I just want to get you there because I, I would like for you to tell this story because it's, it's awesome. You knew that the, the ground war in Vietnam was about to happen. And yes. you, your desire before you became, uh, before you got sent to sea duty, your desire was to, to serve in the Marine Corps infantry. And, th- yes, and that's what you trained for. I was going to be a recon Marine. Yeah. And so you asked the Admiral if there was any way that you could, when you left sea duty, go straight to Vietnam without going back to the States. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Certainly. I, um, like I said, I read the man's mail. This, this was Ad, Admiral Outlaw, Edward Cobb Outlaw. Mm-hmm. He was uh, Navy World War II ace. Um, Navy fighter Cross, fight, fight. Yeah. yeah, Navy Cross fighter pilot from World War yeah. II. Yeah, and uh, a tough character. Um, anyway, um, I read on the message board, uh, there was a message about a Marine Brigadier General that was going to come out, Youngdale was his name, to discuss with the Admiral uh, air support for the landing. And uh, then I went on to read where the landing was going to take place and everything and who all the characters were involved. And at that time, the Marine Corps did not have close air support assets in in that area there. It weren't wouldn't be moving in until after the troops were on the ground. So, uh, and I was, I was due to rotate off. So one afternoon things were kind of quiet and the Admiral was out on the, um, port bridge wing. He'd go out there sometimes, put his hands up on the, you know, on the, um, armor plating and just kind of watch what was going on on the flight deck. And, uh, I walked out, there and I told him, I said, Sir, I know that there's going to be a landing and the Marines are going to go in. I know General Youngdale's coming out here to discuss uh, air support for the operations. And I just wonder if there's any way I could not be transferred back to the United States that I could just go from here straight to the division. You know, I that's what I signed up to do. And I, I've just got, I didn't get, haven't got to do it yet. I've been sidetracked with this job as a seagoing Marine. 
And that was three, that was a two year, uh, tour, three year mm-hmm. tour, two year tour. tour. tour yeah. Okay. Yeah. So and, you're two, uh, you're coming up on the end of your two year sea tour right. as a sea, as a sea, as a Marine. Yeah. I was, I was less than a month away from expecting orders from headquarters Marine Corps. Okay. Probably sending me back to the United States. Right. And, um, so he looked at me kind of funny. You know, I said, I've never worn your rank. I've never asked you for a favor while I'm asking you if there's some way you could help me now. And he, he looked at me and he kind of smiled and he said, Spicer, you don't want to do that. Uh, God damn, you might get yourself killed. You know, uh, and I said, but sir, it's what I signed up to do to be a Marine. So he said, well, sir, there, he said, son, there's going to be enough of this go around. He said, you're going to get your turn. And uh, I said, uh, well, maybe so, sir, but I'd, I'd like to be there. So he just kind of looked at me and he said, I'll talk to General Youngdale about it. And um, so a couple of days later, General Youngdale comes aboard. And of course, he never wasn't familiar with carrier operations or anything like that. And we were uh, still uh, you know, preparing to do all sorts of stuff. So there was a lot of air ops. And the Admiral wanted him to see a launch and a recovery and have lunch. And then they were going to have the discussion uh, after lunch. And he came, they came up on the bridge and I took up my usual position behind his chair. And um, anyway, at some point in time, there was kind of a lull in the action. And he said, have you met my orderly Corporal Spicer? And uh, the general said, no, I haven't. I've seen him, you know, around. Uh, anyway, he said, uh, well, Spicer's got this MOS and he knows you, he knows we're going in and we knows this and knows that. And he'd sure like to, uh, to go with you. He said, could you use a good corporal in the division? You know, and general Youngdale said, well, we could always use a good corporal. And, uh, he looked <laughs> at me, he said, son, if you'll give me your, uh, put your name and your service number, uh, down and everything. He said, I'll look into this for you. So I went and got a piece of paper, wrote it down, handed it to him about an hour or so later while he left the ship on the cod heading back for Okinawa. And, uh, it wasn't more than about uh, 10 days after that. I think I, I got orders to the, the third Marine division. Uh, that's, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. That, that was awesome. Yeah. yeah. And then I, I liked uh, the fact that you did that, and you, and during this time you had applied for the uh, it was the MESEP program, right? Oh, Meritorious NCO, Meritorious NCO program, yeah. which is a a way to get to officer candidate school. Right. And somehow your paperwork got misplaced, so you wound up going into Vietnam. And how how long were you in country uh, as? Is an enlisted man fighting fighting the fight? About uh, five and a half, six months. About five and a half months, I guess, really. Okay. And and okay. you were assigned to a recon unit. Yes. Uh, and you had been in combat operations. Yeah. And then they found out you had orders to officer candidate school, and you got you like missed your class date already. <laughs> you got pulled out of combat like faster than fast, and. Uh, Next thing you know, you're you're standing, uh, you know, in Quantico, and you're still, and, you know, two yeah. days ago you were in a firefight, right? No, I liked even better here how he <laughs> he got to California, 
and they tried to send him back to Vietnam. <laughs> oh my gosh, I forgot <laughs> about that. <laughs> yes, yes. In fact, you know, uh, uh, Pete, you and I were talking about how small the Corps was. Right. When I got back, when I'm checking in at the division reception center, and the guy's trying to assign me to 2nd Battalion <laughs> Echo Company, 2nd Battalion 1st <laughs> Marines, and go get on a truck and go back down to Long Beach to get on a boat to go back to Vietnam. And I told him, you know, I said, listen, you know, you're making a big mistake. I was supposed to go to OCS, so on and so forth. And the only thing that saved me, two things saved me. One, the sergeant major told me when I was pulled out of the bush and was taking my flak jack and my equipment off of me, and they wrote the orders. He said, you need to get a copy of those uh, orders and a copy of that bulletin that you were selected to go to OCS and you got to put that in your damn wallet and don't lose it. He said, cause I bet you're going to need it. And yes, I had advice. that copy of that Marine Corps bulletin <laughs> with my name on it. And I was supposed to be in the 37th officer candidate class, which started on one April. And I went into country on about 20 April or something like that. So <laughs> the whole thing was lost in the shuffle. That staff sergeant name was Faulkner. And he asked me if I could type. I said, I can type like the wind. And so I typed endorsements on orders for three days. He told me, he said, you stick with me here and I'll, we'll try to sort this out. Well, in 1968, I was back in Vietnam. And I, wa I walked into the officer's club at the wing headquarters. And there was a guy standing there and I swore I knew him, and, but he had on a, uh, first Lieutenant Bars, and it was Staff Sergeant Faulkner. He was no way. LBO. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So that was a, when you went back to Vietnam in 1968, was that as a helicopter pilot? As a 834 pilot, yeah. Okay. And, and it, what a small Marine Corps. How about that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Did he remember you? Um. Yeah, he did, sort of after a fashion. You know, when I said, right. I'm the guy that sat on the typewriter for three days, and then he, and then you had to take me over to the division sergeant. He said, Oh, yeah, I remember. You That's know. awesome. Let me ask this Did you ever run across a Marine by the name of Hal Clark? Oh, I sure did. You know Hal? Okay. Yeah. So Hal, Hal was the guy who got me into flight school when I was about to. Uh, Is that right? Yes. Yeah. He just passed last year. Oh, sorry to hear that. Well, he was a damn so, fine gentleman. And I'm trying to think of his wife's name. She was uh, Peggy. Peggy, yeah. Yep. Yeah. We used yeah. to always get a report from uh, Clark uh, on the quality of the uh, shellfish and, uh, and <laughs> there you go. down around uh, uh, the little town, little bitty town near oh, Beaufort. Beaufort. Yeah. Hal was a real gentleman, and and I met him when I first got to Cherry Point as a Hawk missile uh, guy, and he was just retired as a colonel, and uh, I, I'm pretty sure he made some phone calls to help boost my chances to get in the flight. School. You, you need some help somewhere along the way. For sure. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Absolutely. The other name is he was an H 34 pilot in Vietnam. You ever run across Frank Fado? Oh yeah. We were in country at the same time in 68. Frank, uh, okay. Shetty, he tried to get me to work for her. Was it right? Right. That's where he retired from. At some, at some point in time, he was chief pilot for, but, uh, he was indeed. Yeah. He, uh, Frank was a black ace. Um, he crashed, he crashed three H-34s, and um, the good news was nobody got hurt. 
blah, blah, black. So that was, <laughs> that's what they call black ace. Yeah. That's what they call the black ace. <laughs> that's oh awesome. No. I think every one of every one of them was written off. Should have been pilot error, but it was written off to environmental enemy. Um, well, yeah, and they had to come up with something. Um, they called it environmental enemy, and it was when the use of a landing site would not normally. It was weasel worded, but sure. if they had you landed in some strange place and you screwed it up, it was environmental enemy, and that Frank fell into that every time. Doggone it! Nice. He had bad timing. I guess, repeat, I don't want to hog all the questions. Uh, so I haven't read this book yet, uh, but I'm going to about his, um, yeah. you know, he- helicopter experience in Vietnam. Do you have well, questions? Uh, look, the flight school was fascinating. It, you know, the aerodynamic, particularly, um, so we had a gen on by the name of Sticks, who was a Coast Guard helicopter oh, right. uh, pilot. And we had another guy, uh, uh, Candyman, who was an Army helicopter pilot. I both know both of them would really enjoy it. I've talked to Sticks personally about it already that, you know, just the aerodynamics and the different types of uh, rotor heads are fully articulated, you know, rigid, you know, that kind of, you talk about that in the book, not to the point where it's difficult to understand, but just to go, these are the kind of challenges you're all of a sudden trying to face. You don't know anything about <laughs> helicopter aerodynamics right. and they just hand it to you and go here, figure, you know, <laughs> figure it out quick. Here's your fire hose. Start drinking. Well, I remember, uh, you know, I'm sure Colonel Jones, Rusty Jones. William. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, he, he uh, told me when he wrote a review of, of reading Rotorheads, and he said he, he busted out laughing several times in my discussion about the aerodynamics of the rotating foil. Um, we used to call it the mystery hour. And uh, <laughs> when we first day we walked in there, you know, here we, you know, we were pilots already. We knew how to fly, and we go to Ellison Field, and now you don't know anything. And uh, this guy walked in. He was a, a lieutenant, Navy lieutenant. He had a master's degree in aerodynamics. And he said, gentlemen, um, in the next six weeks, you're going to get a master's level course in the aerodynamics of the rotating foil. And he said, at the end of these six weeks, some of you will know exactly what makes a helicopter fly. And some of you are going to think it's all bullshit and black magic. He said, I've been teaching this course for two years now. And personally, I'm a bullshit and black magic man myself. (laughs) (laughs) I felt a little better. I thought, well, maybe I've got a chance, you know. That's great. That's awesome. So, yeah. So uh, there's there's another guy who helped me out a lot. Uh, I was was told uh, uh, you've done a three-year ground tour. You're not going to a fact tour. And then a couple of days later, Luke, who was on one of our shows, called me up. He was a group S1. He goes, uh, group agent. He goes, hey, your name just came across my desk. Go to Tank Battalion as a fact. He goes, you want to go there? I go, hell no, I don't want to go be a fact. He goes, hang on. And he walked in, and, and uh, Rusty Jones was the uh, group CO. He goes, yeah, send him to 203 to be an instructor. And so that's how I Thank got to you. go to the RAG and yeah. Uh, teach. Yeah, well, well I was sort of a, a mentor to Rusty. He was one of the guys that I – uh, dealt with uh, great man yeah a great great man i wish i knew him better Good uh, he, he great guy a hell of an officer yeah. and an extremely smart guy yes. really smart yeah yeah he took 231 to the gulf war on the first go round. yeah so. lucky son bun yeah <laughs> yeah yeah we we uh repeat and i watched the entire gulf war on cnn from the uh, vma 223 ready room <laughs> <laughs> we did that yeah, was brutal. 
Well, did you guys know buckwheat? Uh, By reputation only. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Why do I know that? Why do I know that yeah. name? Yeah. Okay. You got commissioned. You went down to flight school, and you said in the book that there was a guy dancing a jig because you your grades were better than his, but you chose helicopters, and he wanted jets in the worst way, and there was a jet slot, so he got that. You go to helicopters. So if you talk us uh, through flight school a little bit and, and uh, back to Vietnam, and then I'll tell you, people, read this book, Rotorheads, the hair-curling stories of the things this man went through in Vietnam. The average person is going to uh, wind up defecating in their pants over, <laughs> <laughs> over the things this man faced down. Well, I, uh, yeah, I went down to flight school. Um, we were all sort of in a big pot. And, and there was no breakout until after we finished um, softly field. And at that point, you had to make a decision whether or not you wanted to go jets or you wanted to go helos. Right. Um, there was never any doubt in my mind. I mean, I, a jet jets sound sounded great, but um, as, from being a grunt on the ground, the guys that saved my bacon a couple times were the helicopter pilots, that mostly the old A thirty four machines. And um, you had, it was on a point system and the Marine Corps didn't really need very many jet pilots in those days um, because the battle cry was helicopters and they were getting a lot of helicopter pilots uh, wounded and, and killed and some of them were leaving the service. Um, so it was on a point system and I don't remember the whole, the whole way it worked, but if you didn't have at least 200 points, you couldn't even have a look at jets. The Navy, you could have 140 points and get F4s you know, yeah. if, you, if you wanted them. Um, nice. So myself and a guy named D. Habemacher, he's a retired colonel, lives in Savinel, Texas. Um, <laughs> and he's, he's a gold Texas boy, born and raised down there. He thinks any good day, any day's a good day if he doesn't have to leave the ranch. There you go. I had a few more points than he did, and. And uh, no matter what he did, he couldn't catch me. And and then finally, I told him, I just told him, you know, so I'm going helicopters. And I thought he was going to kiss me dead on the lips. You know, <laughs> I really, I really did. Another show title. I thought he was going to kiss me dead on the lips. Because that was his dream, you know. And I told him, I said, I want to go. In hel- I'm taking helicopters. I want to go where the action is. He appears uh, later in book two. In fact, there's a picture in the book of uh, uh, of 20 years to that particular day, that night, that uh, that he had had to punch or attempted to punch out of an A4. I attempted to hover over the burning uh, hulk of his aircraft to make sure he got out in one piece. So, wow, yeah, wow, small world, small Marine Corps again. Yeah. Okay, maybe can you fast forward and tell us about that then? Is that it? You said that's in the book. Yeah, it's in, it's in the book. Um, sure. I was getting close to the end of my tour. Um, my squadron had moved down from up north. I spent most of my uh, that particular tour uh, up flying in what they called Leatherneck Square, but within, you know, artillery range of the border. And um, we'd moved down to Da Nang. Um, we were the last A-34 squadron, HMM. 362 had been the first a, uh, helicopter squadron in country, and it was going to be the last helicopter squadron of the A-34s to be disbanded. And um, so um, 
we had a new CEO and the CEO called me in because we only had three guys that were qualified for night medevac when we first moved down there. Um, myself, Buzz Knight and uh, Al Nitchman. Buzz was killed later on. But anyway, uh, we were bumping into walls because you either had met morning, morning medevac, afternoon medevac or, or night medevac. We didn't have too many other. We had some other shuttle missions, but we didn't have anybody th enough experience to do those things. Right. So we finally got enough experience back in the squadron. And then the squadron CEO said, hey, how about the 46s taking their turn in the barrel? So we got a break. And he called me in. He said, I want you to take two, two aircraft, go down to uh, Chulai and be the SAR uh, for the next three days. He said, it's like three days off. And uh, SAR is uh, search and rescue. Search and rescue. Yeah. And we, we had never done any of those kind that kind of mission. Ours was uh, strictly um, support, indirect support of Marines. Um, so anyway, I, I got a wingman. We went down. It was uh, supposed to be, a, uh, like I say, three days off, three days R&R. &R, and it turned out anything. But the very first day we were down there, I told my wingman, I said, you take your crew, go to Chow. I'll cover until you come back. And then you can relieve me, and then I'll take the night shift. And uh, so all that had happened. I, I went over to have a dinner, and I ran into D. Habermacher. And uh, D. D. Habermacher was the guy that I got out of the way so he could be a jet pilot. And here he was. He just got to country. He'd only been in country about five days or so. And this was his first night TPQ. So he was pretty fired up about it. And I said, well, what time are you rolling? He said, about eight o'clock. I said, well, I got you back. And uh, <laughs> the I hear four A4s. It's, it's dark. I hear four A4s cranking up there down at the far end of the runway. I'm at the, actually close to the northern end of the runway there at Chulai. And it basically ran north and south, um, not very far off the ocean. And uh, I see him taxiing out and going to the arming area and so on and so forth. And uh, we had already pre-flighted and set up for a scramble start and launch. And I was just kind of sitting on the right uh, main mount of the 34. And I watch him roll. Uh, one took off. He broke the ground. You know, looked good. Two, three, four comes along. And it didn't sound right. Some Something wasn't right. I, I don't know what to tell you because I didn't know squat about eight fours then. But uh, he didn't he didn't break the ground. He didn't even look like he was getting light when where everybody else was airborne. And I said, oh shit, I think we got a problem here. So I just yelled scramble to my guys who were everybody's laying around the airplane. And we got up started cranking and about the time I got the rotor going, I heard the explosion of what I assumed was an ejection. And uh, uh, I told the tower, I said, SARS ready to, uh, you know, go. Um, and they they said, we don't know if the pilot's still in the airplane or not. Can you tell us if the pilot, can you get over and take a look? So I lifted off and I turned around and as I lifted off, my co-pilot said, holy shit. <laughs> and he was looking at about an 80 foot fireball. Oh boy! And uh, I kept turning the aircraft, and there's 500 pound bombs scattered every damn where, and fuel 
<laughs> and and flames and so i thought that the only way i'm going to find out if this guy's in the airplane is to get above it and blow the you know use a rotor wash to blow the flames away from the cockpit so i started and, and I, I couldn't really see over the nose of the airplane so i turned it i was side slipping it and then I, I realized when I felt the heat that I wasn't going fast enough. I was just going way too slow. <laughs> and I'm in a magnesium airplane that burns 115, 145 aviation fuel. So oh. I wasn't going to be able to linger. And uh, so I backed <laughs> off real quick and then went sideways at the aircraft just about as fast as I could make a 34 go. And that gave me a good look at the aircraft, gave the crew chief a good look at the aircraft. And I managed to sort of side flare it and come down over the top of it. And we saw that the cockpit was empty, and uh, w which was great news. And, and the crew chief said, hey, Captain, it's getting kind of warm in here, you know. <laughs> so we backed off. I started hovering around, turned on the landing light, hover light and everything. I started looking around. I couldn't, I couldn't see anybody. And what I was worried about was if he punched out, then the damn chute might still be attached to him. You know, if I did run up on him, I was going to catch that chute up in, in the rotors. So I told the tower, I said, I don't, I don't see him anywhere. And about that time, finally, the crash crew arrived because they had to come from a, a lot farther way off uh, than I did. But anyway, I never did know what happened. And he had had punched out and he caught his toe on the dashboard, I guess, or foot. And it sort of moved all his toes over <laughs> one direction or another on that foot. And anyway, he was met back, back to the States. I did not see him uh, ever again until we had both retired. And it just happened to be 20 years exactly to that night that my wife and I had ridden a motorcycle out west. And we decided to look him up. And we went to his ranch in Sabinel. As soon as we got there, it was uh, kind of funny because he, he didn't say much other than get in the truck. And uh, so I got in his pickup truck. I left my wife there <laughs> and we started into town. I said, where are we going? He said, we got, got to get some beer or something. He said, no, I'm, we're going to my mom's house. And I said, your mom's house? And uh, <laughs> he said, yeah. He said, I, I want you to, to meet her. And I said, well, okay. And I said, why do you want me to meet her? He said, well, she wants to meet you. I said, well, why is that? And he said, because she wants to see the son of a bitch that was crazy enough to hover over a burning aircraft to save her son. I'll be darned. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, so where, where was he? Was he down somewhere in the wreckage? He wasn't at that time. They didn't have his seat. Wasn't really, he wasn't really in the envelope enough or he was barely in the envelope. Oh yeah. And, and so he came out, he on the, did he get air? Did he get uh, spice? Did he get airborne and then eject or did he eject off the airplane as it was going down that runway? No, you he know? was still on the deck when he ejected, oh, but he shit. was, he had chained off the bombs trying to get light enough to get airborne, but it still, okay. it still didn't, it didn't work, you know? Okay. That's why the damn 500 pounders were scattered everywhere. And I'm, when I'm looking for him, I'm looking among the bombs and I thought, I, you know, I hope these some bitches don't start going low order. Don't cook off. Right. You know? Yeah. Right. Uh, he was on the other side of the runway from me and had found a ditch right near like the seven board or something on, on the runway. So, you know, 7,000 foot of, of Yep. And they only had, you know, I think it was 8,000 8, on that uh, Marston Manning runway anyway. But he told me, he said, I was hiding in the ditch by the board 
you know, in case those things did go off. I thought, well, being in the ditch is better than not. And I said, I, I stayed there until the crash crew had the fire pretty much down. And then I started yelling for help because I couldn't get up. Uh, wow. Uh, hey, uh, real quick, you used an acronym uh, that I don't think we've heard before. And um, yeah. Yeah, TPQ, Tango Papa Quebec. You said he was going out on a TPQ. Right. A t- TPQ was a, a radar control drop. And the TPQ comes from the type of radar that okay. was used. And somebody would want a bombing mission on a set of coordinates. And at that time, this TPQ radar could position your aircraft in the sky at exactly the point uh, when they told you to pickle for those bombs to hit the target. Okay. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Okay. Yeah. I had that exact same question. I think the radar was called a TPQ-10. Okay. This is all fascinating. I know. I, I, yeah. I don't. I don't know where we are uh, with time. I kind of lost track. Uh, we're we're a little over an hour right now, so we got we've got. Uh, is uh, I'll sit here all afternoon. I know. As <laughs> you're willing to sit with us, Colonel. Do you, do <laughs> we need a timeout break? break we of, can do that uh, too. Do we need a physiological break or? Uh, no, I, I'm okay for the moment. Uh, okay. All right. So let's go a little while longer. If you need if you need a break, just say so, and we'll pause it up. But uh, we'll go from there. Um, I I've got a question you may not have an answer to. Um, uh, and I'll go, it, it's, it's based on rotorheads book two. And you talk about going into these, these hot zones and you said, uh, there, there was really only one time where you got upset and it was talking about, uh, uh, a civilian girl who had gotten burned and you, you were going back to pick her up and, and, but you made a point of never yelling at your crew, never raising your voice. Um, so, uh, how is it, uh, one goes into a zone where there's small arms fire and mortar fire, you know, and 50 cal and, uh, how do you do that? What, how do you muster that up? Um, and, and, and remain calm and be useful to your remaining crew. Um, I know that's a difficult, that's a nebulous question, but. Well, I, as far as how do you make, you know, how do you talk yourself into doing something like that? Yeah. I always thought about the fact of what if it was me, what would I want that helicopter pilot to do? And I never, I never went into a zone or a situation if I made the decision that I was going that I didn't say to the crew, anybody doesn't want to go, tell me now, and I'll put you down in a safe place and come back and get you. I never had anyone ever say anything, then let's go. Um, so it was from that standpoint, what if it was me? Uh, that I w- would go down to do that. And, a- and after a while, you just... Uh, you you just kind of steal yourself to that. Um, I used to sometimes I would turn off all the mixer switches uh, so I didn't have to hear the radio or anything like that. I might leave on um, the Armed Forces Radio Network, you know, and we used to be able to receive that through an old ARN six bird dog, a direction finder radar, a radio, and uh, and I made a lot of stone or a lot of approaches to uh, zones under fire, uh, listening to the stones or, you know, <laughs> can't get no satisfaction or we got to get out of this place or something like that. Uh, right. And you just did it. Uh, I mean, I, I never really worried too much about the small arms fire. Okay. Uh, mortars, you couldn't do much about anyway. Uh, 
when when the green and white tracers started going by, that's when you got worried. Those were 50 calibers. And uh, if you ever saw the red beer can going by close aboard, that was a 37 millimeter, and you better do something about it right now uh, because it was probably radar controlled. The good news was we were slow enough that there, I don't know if the radar compensated very well for a real slow moving target. So when they fired at us, it usually missed. They usually had uh, too much lead on it. Okay. jeez. That's, that's all, you know, that's a, uh, that's a a more perfect answer than I could have ever expected. Oh yeah. What if it was me? Thank you. Yeah. Right. You know, and I was also went back to what they, what they taught us at OCS and, and, and I'm sure they, at boot camp too, that you're more afraid of letting your buddy down. Oh yeah. Than of being a coward. Oh, for sure. For sure. And the other thing uh, about that was I, except for that one time. I never, ever would yell at a crew chief or scream or, or whatever, anything like that. Some pilots did. You get pretty excited. Um, but you you had to be as cool as a possible cucumber because that translated to them. And uh, right. I've been so scared in a zone before that I was holding my feet on the brakes. I had to put my hands on top of my knees to keep them from shaking so much, you know. But you had to be, you had to to keep it together. You couldn't, couldn't let it right. show. Right. I'm pretty sure it was one of the, uh, you know, you go into a hot zone and all that, but it wasn't that, was it the mail run where you wound up getting a visit on a hospital ship oh, and getting uh, to th- yeah. sleep with three Navy nurses? Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> right. Uh, the mail run was a coveted mission because it was yeah. like a day off. You could uh, fly down from up North or off the ship. How'd that work out for you? Uh, well, <laughs> I I was due for the mail run and we'd run out of uh, co-pilots. And so they said, well, you're not going to get the mail run, Spice. You're going to have to wait again, you know, because we don't have enough co-pilots. I said, shit, I'll fly somebody's co-pilot. I don't care. But, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, so I wound up flying with a guy named Glenn Russell and uh, as his co-pilot. And it was kind of fun to fly with a contemporary because, you know, if you want to smoke a cigarette, hang your leg out the window. You can, you don't have to worry about the guy that's minding the store. Right. Right. You go down feet wet, usually uh, just off the coast. So you're out. Nobody, if they shoot at you, they can't hit you. And and the thing about the mail run was you went down, you burnt down a fuel. So you went into the wing compound. That's where you had to pick up the mail and the passengers. And so you want to be as light as you possibly could. And then you'd come out of uh, wing zone and go over to Marble Mountain and and uh, land and get fuel and you could go eat in the Marble Mountain mess and that was heaven, you know. Real food, huh? real food, <laughs> hot chow instead of sea rats. <laughs> had flush toilets and if you were lucky wow. and you scrounged around long enough, you might find an old copy of Stars and Stripes, so you could read and take a dump at the same time, which was a real privilege. <laughs> um, and we we had yes. done. We had done that, and we were on our way back, and there was something called Monkey Mountain. It was right at the entrance to Da Nang Harbor, and there was just an island that was just off to the side, just pure rock sticking up. And we never thought too much about it, but we would normally go between the big mountain, which constituted High Van Pass, and that rock. Anyway, we were doing that. We were probably about 500 feet, something like that. And all of a sudden, green and white tracers started coming by. We thought, oh, boy, some hardcore son of a bitch has floated and managed to get a, a 50 cal out there on that rock. And they got us pinned up against the wall. We can't get away from it. And we took a couple hits up in the rotor head. We knew we had a problem. And 
we limped around to an entrance to a bay and we set it down on the beach. The tide was out, so we had a lot of beach to work with. We just did a little roll on landing and shut it down, checked the rotor head. And, you know, wasn't one of those we could sort of stick duct tape on it and go on. You know, no bubble gum wrappers and duct tape. Oh, boy. <laughs> up a blade with a few bullet holes in it, you know, and some duct tape. But And uh, then we, we saw... Myself and Glenn saw this old papasan standing over right near a tree line. There was about 150 yards of, from the beach itself. There's about 150 yards more of sand and then this tree line. And uh, so we decided to jog over there and uh, ask if, if there's any enemy in the area. So we go over there and said, uh, papasan, any VC, any VC. He goes, shake his head. He said, no VC. Boku NBA. Oh shit! <laughs> and that's what we said. <laughs> and so, so well, you know, we we jogged back to the aircraft, pulled the M60s out of it, had the crew chief and the gunner set up in front and behind the aircraft some distance, so they had a good field of fire to the tree line. And it was a little while before the bad guys kind of discovered we were there, but sure enough. And we'd call for help, call the cavalry. And we started taking some fire from the tree line uh, intermittently. And a friend of mine, Robbie Robertson, came in. I don't know where he came from, but it, he called us on the radio and said, he's going to make a run. Don't screw around. Uh, and so that's what we we did. He landed in front of us at a roll on landing. We ran up. We'd sent the other aircraft on. We'd, we'd loaded all the mail and passengers on him and got him out of there. So ours was pretty much empty. And we got on the airplane. We're climbing away. And you could hear a couple of rounds hit the aircraft. And uh, the crew chief uh, was a kid named Wilson. I'd flown with him a bunch of times. Wilson, uh, we smelled battery acid. And the rounds must have hit something that threw everything out of the generator directly into the battery, but it was boiling over. So Wilson got up and un unscrewed the panel and then got the battery loose. A battery was a huge thing, uh, start to R R1820. And uh, he got up and he was going to throw the battery out the door. And about that time, Robbie must have taken a burst of fire and he jinked the airplane, turned real hard toward the ocean. And Wilson was going out the door with the battery, you know, he's out of balance. And I was getting really close. So I, I had unsnapped my seatbelt when he got up. And I just reached up and I grabbed him by the back of the bullet bouncer and pulled him this way. And the battery went out. But when the battery went out, the side slip or the, you know, the wind sucked whatever boiling acid that was still in there right back and oh, he had his visor down i didn't and it hit me right in the face and i when i screamed uh i'm sure pretty loudly loudly enough the guy flying and robbie could hear me and we had a corpsman <laughs> on the airplane anyway wilson landed on top of me and uh, i was trying to get a, a canteen of water out of my because the first thing i thought of was this dump water dump water and uh, he got the idea. So everybody pitched in. The corpsman um, must have had a whole bunch of water there. And anyway, they just started irrigating my eyes 
in my face. Uh, I thought they were going to drown waterboard me almost. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, because Robbie and I were pretty good friends, he wasn't screwing around. He didn't bother to take me an aid station. We were already feet wet. Hospital ship was just up there a little ways. We'd seen it going down. So he took me straight to the hospital ship. And, um, you know, you get off and I, I couldn't see. Uh, my eyes were all blurry and everything. And um, they just immediately grab you and throw you down and start stripping you off. And you're begging them not to cut your Nomex light suit and this sort of stuff. But they do it anyway. anyway. So I wound up. And waterboarded you again, did they? Yeah, well, I wound up within within 30 minutes of that happening. I was in had my head in a vice ophthalmic surgeon was looking at me. And uh, he told me, he said, you're, you're one lucky son of a bitch. And I said, I, I, I think I am. Anyway, he uh, filled my eyes. I mean, he had literally pulled the eyelid out and just stuffed all this salve of some sort up underneath my eyelid. Oh, geez. it up. And uh, said, you're going to stay here for the night anyway. And uh, so they didn't really want to take up a hospital bed with me. I was ambulatory. I just couldn't see. I didn't have any other injuries. Uh, so they, there was one of the nurses was on R&R. And they took me down to the nurse's quarters. And there were four to a room. And I got the empty rack. So. I spent the and night. you were ba- and you were blindfolded, so you couldn't see. <laughs> I, I was, but it's amazing how quick your nose and your ears pick up the difference. Uh-huh. Uh, and then, of course, I, the next day I, they had the great unveiling, and I could still see. I rinsed my eyes out. Um, I had a couple of, of uh, pits, they called them, in the whites of my eye. But the good news was the corneas, everything was intact. Wow, that's and, uh, so they said the biggest danger was for getting an infection, and they gave me this salve and these drops, and they said, uh, you, you know, you're good to go. And uh, so we we called on the radio, and uh, one of my squadron aircraft came by and picked me up, and, uh, um, and I was on the flight schedule the next day. <laughs> get back to work. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Quit slacking. Wow. Oh, that's awesome. So, uh, well, how, how did you wind up, uh, I don't, I don't want to skip all over book three, which is where you did the British tour, which is some amazing stories too. Uh, so I'm trying to think of I know. great stuff. I know you, you don't want to leave with... anything out, but oh, I mean, yeah, holy I know, cow, right? we'll be here for a week. <laughs> yeah. You uh, wound up with a, uh, a shipment of VW to, uh, England, which was a real popular vehicle in the sixties uh, in England, right? Only yeah, 20 years yeah. after the, uh, World War II. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, then buying a London taxi and, uh, yeah. uh I, I did. Uh, I, I loved to ride in the London taxis. Uh, I didn't really like driving it, but I loved driving, uh, riding in it. So I bought it and I brought it down and I used it as my work car. I had all sorts of volunteers of the guys that were, I was with to drive it. So I, you know, I would usually just ride in the back. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, we had a great time with it. I brought it home. Um, I had to store it when I went back to uh, overseas, back to Vietnam. And uh, after amphibious uh, warfare school, um, and I stored it in an uncle of mine's barn for a year. It didn't do it any good, but it, it was okay. And then when I was sent to Cherry Point, um, 
to finish uh, training in the A4, I went and got it and I had it on the base there. And uh, uh, one of the British exchange officers, a guy named Proudfoot, Hoof Proudfoot, a squadron leader, he he just thought he died and gone to heaven because I let him drive it whenever he wanted to, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, nice. And being in the Harrier program, it worked out just right, you know. And eventually, I sold it to a guy that had been an A4 pilot, got out of the Marine Corps, opened up a real estate business there in Havelock at about the right time, I think. And he used to show property in it, and that was his. That he had it on his advertising. He had the London taxi on there. Uh, eight. So eight. It was the A four rag in in Cherry Point. Well, yeah, the training squadron VMAT two hundred three was there at Cherry Point. Was two hundred three? Oh, I thought it was one hundred two. Is two hundred three an A four rag as well? Yeah, it was when I got there. I okay. mean, I don't know okay. what it had been before, but uh, but yeah, two hundred three. Okay. Because they just flamed out less than a year ago. Obviously, a Harrier rag then. But uh, it was the A four Mike. Yeah, uh, yeah, A four Mike. We, we had the T and then we had the mics. Okay. Okay. So, so how'd you wind up getting the jet transition? Yeah. What um, did that, I, you know, I've skipped over a lot cause I haven't read books four and five yet, but. Well, I, uh, they, when I came back from England, uh, and I was at amphibious warfare school, <clears throat> I got a call from my monitor and he said, uh, Hey, uh, great job, spies, blah, 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 rave reviews, all this sort of crap. And he said, uh, have you ever thought about flying fixed wing? And I said, uh, uh, no, I haven't. You know, I figured I'm too far down the pike as a helicopter pilot to, to um, switch. And he said, well, uh, you know, why don't you think about it and put in for fixed wing transition? And I said, how do I do that? And he said, well, just go down to the S1 and ask for an administrative action form, fill it out, and send it up to me uh, here at headquarters. His name was Miller. He said, I think your odds are good. I'm on the board. And uh, <laughs> I, I sent it up there. Like About a week later, I get a message in my box there at the basic school. It says, congratulations, you've been accepted for fixed wing transition. And um, so I was really excited about that. And then they came down to talk to you about your orders uh, near the end of school. And Depp said to me, he said, Spice, I can't send you to fixed wing transition. I said, I am so desperate for helicopter guys, particularly Sikorsky guys in Westpac. We don't know what's going to happen with the war and so on and so forth. He said, so if you would go to Westpac for me one more time in helicopters, he said, I'll bring you back and I'll run you through the Cadillac transition. He said, if you try to go now, you're going to get the bums rush and uh, you're not going to have the experience and training that you really need. So I agreed with him and I said, uh, I'll take the Cadillac transition. So I went back to Westpac. I flew the 853 that tour most of the time. Because I was an old 34 guy, it wasn't too bad. And I had a lot of shipboard experience. Well, um, they sent me down to the boat immediately. And uh, But as it as it turned out, it was a good decision. So, how, how long was that, awesome. uh, was that tour, that second Westpac tour? Uh, a flying year. 53s, a year? Okay. A year. And then you went to the jet, then you went to jet transition? Yeah, I came, transition. Back, I came back and I went straight to... Uh, Kingsville, Texas. Okay. Uh, 
<clears throat> and I was in what they call the J2 Jet Transition Training Unit. I was a class of one. <laughs> I flew uh, about that time. The POWs had, and we'd got them out of jail while I was over there, and they had come back. And so there were two or three of them there. And uh, one of the former POWs and I, a guy named Ray Alcorn, we sort of were each other's instructors. He'd been an A4 pilot when it was shot down. So once we got through the basics, they would send us out on navigation hops, instrument hops, uh, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And the one, the one thing I wanted to do was hit the boat. And I told them I'd, I'd trade anything for that. And, um, and, and they were good on their word. They said, okay, we'll get you a chance to hit the boat. All right. Was it the Lexington? Yeah, it was the Lex. Uh, weather was absolutely dog do, but it was a hell of a day. I was done by eight o'clock in the morning and I was driving out the gate at Kingsville going back to my apartment to be with my family and looking at the people coming in the gate. And I thought, I wonder what the ordinary people do for work. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, so after Kingsville, <laughs> then you went up to uh, Cherry Point for VMAT 203? Yeah. Well, I started out, it was called MC, MCRTG 20 or something like that. I had orders to transition to the A6. They were going to put me in an EA6. And I went to a friend of mine from Amphibious Warfare School who was sort of the monitor and a controller of that. And I said, I'll do whatever I got to do not to go to an EA6. And uh, <laughs> so we made it. So that's a, yeah, that's a four-seat electronic warfare bird. Yeah. Which is, yeah. And uh, yeah. we made a deal. And... Uh, I got out of the, I got out of it. EA six deal went down to the 203, and then I was uh, f finished with the syllabus, and uh, I was supposed to have orders to VMA 324 down at Buford. Um, in fact, and they made me the maintenance officer of 203 until I was to go, and I was uh, standing. Came back from a test stop one day. I was standing in the red room filling out the paperwork and. Um, I'd seen this Lieutenant Colonel around. I didn't know what he, who he was or what his function was. But anyway, he just walked up to me and he said, your name's Spicer. I said, yes, sir. Yes. He said, how'd you like to fly Harriers? <laughs> and I said, geez, I never, I never thought that I could ever do that or be in the Harrier program. And he said, well, I'm looking for a guy just like you. What, and what year was that, uh, Spice? That would have been 70. 73, 74. So the, the Harrier was still really new. I mean, we got them in 71. Yeah, they, uh, they 513 had stood up, 542 had stood up, and they were in the process of standing up 231. And 542 had moved up from Beaufort. So, and uh, then uh, 231 stood up there at Cherry Point. And, um, I was in the, they put a cadre of pilots in. Those guys were trained by 542 down in Beaufort. And then I was in a group, was going to be the first group that the pilots of 231 trained. And I was supposed to stay in 231. And wow. the roster, but it didn't happen. Um, uh, Colonel Nelson, the CO said, told me, call me in. He said, Bill, you're not going to stay with us. And I said, geez, I, I was just some of the best guys I'd ever served with. And I, 
I said, I'll do anything. I'll be the coffee mess officer. I don't care. And he said, no, you're going to 542 and you're going to be there a long time. So I was, <laughs> I did. And I, was. <laughs> uh, I went over. And I, well, at least he didn't fire you for departing the aircraft on your very first flight. Oh no. Oh no. In fact, uh, <laughs> a lot of uh, guys, when got back, they didn't realize he'd briefed me to do that. And they were really shocked that he had put me through that on my very first hop. So, so, so just to recap, because I'm trying to wrap my head, my head around this and put myself in this, in your, in your shoes. First time in the Harrier, you're briefed by the skipper. You're going to fly out over the sound and basically um, you're going to depart this airplane. Yes. Yeah. They flight now, now I'll tell you how stupid I was. I didn't really think that was a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> if we only knew then what we know now. Wow. <laughs> so we uh just to cuz I never flew it and and I you know, I'm always uh, just uh enamored with the the guys that flew the A, the single seat A. So it was a it was really fast, right? It was yeah. faster than the B. It was uh uh, a lot squirrelier in the V stall because it didn't have the big stability augmentation system that the B had. Uh, right. So what 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 other, what else am I missing? It was well it was fast. I, uh, the, like I told you the in the beginning, they um, at that time the pilots merge pocket checklist had eight pages. And I don't know what page it was, like maybe three or four. And there was a big bold yeah. thing that said, do not attempt full stick deflection aileron rolls above 360 knots. And, of course, that immediately caused me to wonder, well, why not? You know? Yeah. Decouple. And, uh, so on one day, I I finished FAM, and I was in 542. And I was on a V-stall refresher. So you're supposed to go up and do some high work and then come down and, you know, spend most of your time in a pattern restock. So I thought, well, shit, I'll just check this thing out. So I winded up to about four and a quarter and slammed the stick as hard as I could to the left. And uh, my head bounced off the side of the canopy. Uh, I don't know if I made a complete roll, but anyway, it started to, uh, the nose started to arc. And then the next thing I know, it swapped ends. Yeah, and I'm going backwards, and I got this flame coming by the canopy, and I and I knew a compressor stall was coming, so I shut it down, you know, and uh, <laughs> I I shut it down, and I just I just sort of put everything in the middle and said, let's see what happens, you know, <laughs> and, and like I said, the Harrier was it was a good old the lawn dart. Because it became a yard dart, and I came down, and I recovered it. Now, what, I don't remember what altitude exactly I went in at, but I recovered. You were supposed to punch out if you were out of control going through 10. Right. I didn't even remember going through 10. That happened so fast. <laughs> I, I, was, I was below 5,000 feet for sure, Some probably somewhere in between two and 5,000 feet over the Noose River or in the Pamico Sound when I got her straight and level and, uh, and I had the engine relit, I was coming up on the power to come out of it. Wow. And, um, so I thought, well, I better hold off on the V stall. I'll just go back and tell the boys I need to scope this beauty because right. <laughs> right. I departed it. And, uh, it made a couple of coughs on the way down. Uh, 
So I did that, and I'm in a pious locker room, and uh, I was uh, I had just made major. There was a captain in there named Joe Gallo. He'd been a former Cobra driver, and there was a lieutenant in there named Win Roarball, call sign bag, and so I'm changing clothes, and they're in there doing the same thing. And I said, uh, hey, you guys know that page in the book that says uh, do not attempt full stick to put? They said, yeah, you did it, didn't you? Uh, said, well, yeah, I did. They said, I said, what about you guys? I said, yeah, I did, too. I did, too. <laughs> so Rohrbaugh says, well, what altitude where did you get it out? And I said, well, somewhere between two and, and 5,000 feet. I don't, I don't really know. I was pretty busy. And they said, oh, shit, that's really good. <laughs> Warboy said, I was, I was about 1,500 feet. Oh, my and, gosh. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and, and, and Cobra was a little bit lower than that. But, and the philosophy <laughs> was it was better to be dead than look bad. So, oh, my gosh. Right? So, so anyway, that was kind of the attitude, you know. Uh, and there were so many unknown things about that airplane that – that just weren't written down, you know, so you kind of right. discovered them as you went along. And, um, I was extremely comfortable in the V stall mode. I never worried about that. I, I could do all sorts of stuff that, uh, we used to have pad offs. And so you could do the fastest 360, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I asked a good friend of mine who was the AV8B pilot, Duke Savage, Colonel Duke Savage. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I said to Duke, "Is what's the difference between the AV8A and the AV8B?" And Duke said, "Well, I know you had a sports car at one time, an Austin Healey that had a blower on it." And I said, "Yeah," <laughs> and he said, uh, "Have you ever driven a Buick Roadmaster?" <laughs> I said, "Well, yeah, I have. I had a '53 Buick Roadmaster." He said, "Well, the AV8B was a little bit like a Buick Roadmaster," and. <laughs> Yeah. The is more like your Healy. And I just, I believed him. I'm, I've never really had a chance to, I've only been in the cockpit of the B once. And they invited me up to be a mess night speaker at uh, Cherry Point when Joe Anderson had 331 and Lancer had the wing. Anyway, Joe assigned Ben Hancock to me. <laughs> Long man. And Joe told him I'd never been in a B, but I had, had some input into the HOTAS and the departure resistance system and that sort of thing. And so he had one all uh, heated up in the hangar for me with electronics and things. And and that's the only time I've been in the cockpit. And he was giving me a demonstration, which was, I was probably not smart enough to fly the damn uh, B, but uh, I remember. Well, it was substantially said, wider cockpit, as, as I recall. And yeah. then, uh, it's just set up higher, visibility. better visibility. Uh, but yeah. boy. Yeah. Uh, like you said, oh, boy, it's nowhere uh, near the performance. No, well, the so, AVA, you you didn't get in it; you put it on. Yeah, and, right. Uh, but but I but I remember he was telling me about the weapons delivery system, and he said, "Colonel, it's it's just like playing a great big video game." And I said, "Well, what happens when some rude sob stuffs a fifty or a thirty-seven millimeter right through your video game? How do you get the ordnance off and get it on the target for the Marines on the ground?" He said, "Oh, we'd have to go back." And I said, no, I'm sorry, Captain. It does not work that way. You don't go back with ordnance on when you've got troops in contact. And, and he said, well, how did you guys do it? I said, we did it with dive angle, airspeed, and altitude. 
release altitude. And I said, on 10 degree runs, we just went in and scraped them off. I said, <laughs> you'd drive down until the target looked big enough that you could lean out of the cockpit and hit it with a big orange. And I said, we yeah. call it the big orange theory. Yeah, well, mailbox, sign, the, big the orange mess, theory. The mess, mess night came and went, and Joe, I was supposed to go down to his office on Monday morning. He was going to have a ride for me back up to Kinston to catch the airplane. And he went down to get a couple cups of coffee for us. And he came back. He was laughing. And I said, what's so funny? And he said, they're down there talking about the big orange theory in the, in the ready room. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, Hancock asked me, is that the way you did it? And I said, yeah. And he told him, yeah, that is. And they said, did it work? I said, well, it worked for Colonel Spicer and those guys. So, <laughs> yeah, right. But it was, a, it was a different world. I, I couldn't believe the technology that the bee had in it. And, uh, and of course, it just got better, didn't it? Uh, was the A a good uh, weapons platform? Was it stable in the in a dive for oh, yeah, bombing? And because the B bomber. was, yeah. yeah, it was a great bomber. You you roll in, put your nose on a target, roll out, and the target would be right there. It didn't move, you know. Whereas oh, the A four, you know, you would yaw a little bit. Sure, working back to the target. No, it was a great bomber. Yeah, I, I taught. I was an instructor in the in the TA four in uh, in Kingsville. T- teaching bombing in that airplane was, you know, that was a, it was an art. Uh, yeah, and well, then when you had the, all the magic that you had in the Harrier, it was, you know, it wasn't very hard. It wasn't very hard to get a good hit. Let's put it that yeah. way. Yeah. Now, now, geez, it's got a targeting pod and it laser designates its own targets up to, you know, I don't know how many at a time. And it, it's phenomenal. The, like you say, the technology has gone nuts. There's no looking back. In fact, it may be at the point where you can't get one off if you don't have the electronics anymore. But is that right? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's been obviously 25 plus years since I've flown one. But yeah, when I was there last year for the for the reunion, we got a brief tour and took my son uh, on base, and he got to see it. I saw the targeting pod, and and we talked a little bit about it, and I was like, oh wow, that was way beyond the capabilities we ever had when we were flying this thing. I'm starting to wear down a little bit, guys, and. Uh if you want to uh, do this again, I'd be more than willing to do that with you. Um, well, that would be great. And it would give you a chance to finish up the books or something, or give you more questions to ask. Sure. No worries. We would love to do that. We would love to have you back. And so I think the first thing that we want to do, sir, is thank you for yes. your service. Thank you for your service, Colonel. Thank God bless you. Same to you and guys. So. Thank you for stepping up there, Marines and civilians uh, alive today, because you had the stones to go into hot LZs and, and get them <laughs> out. Lord, do you and, do uh, you have to uh, do you wear an extra thick uh, jock strap to carry around those <laughs> giant gonads that you have? <laughs> no, no. Oh, thank you for those. Uh, I, I really look forward to talking to you again because I I'm gonna have a I'm gonna have a list of questions ready to go. Yeah, and people read the books. Sea Stories oh of a gosh. U.S. Marine. Yes. Five books right now. He's got a couple more books coming out with short stories. So we're looking forward to those as well. In fact, one of the short stories is called The Resurrection of 158-700. And the Harrier photo that's on book four, and the one that you sent me to use as a background, right. is 158-700. And I pretty much rescued that aircraft from just being trashed out. And the, and the whole short story is about the resurrection of one five eight seven hundred. All right. Oh, look forward to hearing yeah. that. Then. So that's very cool. A couple other thank yous we have to make. Fig. First of all is Dave Hamilton. 
Dave Hamilton Thank you, Dave. over at the Mac Geek Gab and the Business Brain. Thank you, Dave, for giving us the technology to do this. If you want to reach out to us and ask us any questions, fig at so there I was dot us. Repeat at so there I was dot us. And this is a surprise to even fig. Now sticks at so there I was dot us. Sticks has agreed to step up, help us with the admin, hey, answer sticks. some questions. Yeah, indeed. So sticks at so there I was dot us. Our Coast Guard rescue pilot. Also, you can reach us. Follow us on Twitter. So there I was dot us slash Twitter on Rumble. So there I was dot us slash Rumble. We've cracked the hundred followers. So thank you very much for that. Whoop. And on Facebook. So there I was dot us slash Facebook. Robin's Bird Brain Designs is our sponsor who lets this show come to you every week. Reach out to Robin if you have a gift that you need to give somebody and you want to show that you've put some extra thought and consideration into getting someone the perfect gift. She can laser etch just about anything for you and she will do so with uh, your consultation. We have a glossary page. So there I was dot us slash glossary. If you've heard things like TPQ and you don't know what they are, it's going to be on the glossary page. If it's not on the glossary page, write to us and tell us to put it there and we will make it so. We have a subscribe page, so there I was, .us slash subscribe, and that'll take you to a page where you can choose whether you want to listen on Spotify, iHeart, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, any one of those. Apple Podcasts is the preferred app for us because there you can give us a five-star rating. Not four stars, not three stars, but five stars. Five stars, baby. And give us a good review. And then finally, the people you're hearing in the background, who is that, Fig? Ghosts. Green Ghosts. The two men who give the Air Force. That's right. They make the Air Force look good and sound good. <laughs> Indeed, they do. Thank you, everybody, for joining, for sharing. Thank you, Colonel Spicer, for being with us today. Yes, we sir. look forward to the day when you come back with us, and we hope it's very soon because your stories are off the charts fascinating and fun to listen to. We're grateful for that. In the meantime, everybody, stay safe and check six. Crossing the pond And you could see that I wasn't exactly fond Of all the shit I was wearing On that day Now an F-16 is cramped enough But it's even worse With all that stuff Supposed to save your life But we knew there was no way Cause when you're going down The North Atlantic, man, it's over The song said It's over See ya! Lieutenant Anderson introduced himself and told us we would now begin the math and physics inventory exam. As he was passing out the tests, I noticed the Naval Academy guys pulling their slide rules out of their leather cases and placing them on their desks. This made me just a little nervous. There were 40 questions combined on algebra, geometry, and trig, 40 questions on calculus, and the same for physics. I was very surprised at how quickly a lot of information came back to me once I started on the test. I finished the first part in good time and turned to the calculus section. Since I had never taken a minute of calculus, the words on the paper might as well have been Greek. I read over several of the questions and thought I would just make a logical, educated, calculated guess at each answer and hope for the best. After reading the fourth question, I knew that idea was simply bullshit. I thought, what the hell? Rolled my answer sheet over to the calculus test answer section, took my number two pencil, and went straight down the page marking C, 
for all 40 questions. I folded up my test booklet, got up, and turned it into Lieutenant Anderson. At 1300, we all went back to the academic building. I stepped up to the window and gave my name. Lieutenant Anderson picked up his clipboard and found my name. He glanced at me and then said, Spicer. Let's see. Okay. Nice score in physics. Okay. Algebra, geometry, and trig. And just barely okay in calculus. Looks like you're a little shaky there. You might want to get some of the program texts and brush up. Does this mean I pass, sir? Yeah, you passed. You're just a little shaky in calculus. Next man. I blame society.